Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 12th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the Texas Rangers opening their stadium at full capacity, the Vancouver Canucks having more than 20 positive COVID cases, and other scenes from the sports world's pandemic purgatory. We'll also discuss what sports achievements remain undone now that the San Diego Padres have thrown their first no-hitter. And Luke Eplin will be here for a conversation about his book, Our Team, on the 1948 Cleveland Indians and the lesser-known story of the second Black player in the major leagues, Larry Doby. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., I think I got it right this week, Stefan Fatsis, author of the book Word Freak, in a few seconds of panic. I just live in fear of getting your location wrong, Stefan. You, you tore the paint off the walls last week. I did. I mean, it was pretty obvious where I was or where I wasn't. I mean, you know what my background looks like here in D.C. Is there a Broncos helmet? Yes. Okay. I think we're good. Yeah. I think uh, you are in D.C. And with us from the West Coast, the reliable hmm. Joel Anderson, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6. Hello, Joel. Yo, good morning. How y'all doing? Doing well. Have you thought about putting up a TCU helmet? No. Uh, I don't have any. I still have a lot of. Do you have any of your uh, old stuff? Yeah. Do you have a TCU helmet? I know. I don't think people were getting helmets back in the 90s like that. Yeah, well, uh, I have like a, a little bit of warm up gear and my old cleats, um, which I think I'm pretty sure I stole. I don't think I was allowed to take those, but I took them anyway. Um, but I think that's, you should <laughs> encase them in Lucite, maybe. Mm-hmm. Or maybe huh. send them to the TCU Sports Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that they could use a door jam or something like that. <laughs> Wait, no jersey? You know, I wasn't good enough. Like, I shared, I, I I suited up only a couple of times for home games. You know what? I, I think my name was on the back of it. I couldn't even tell you, but... I, I definitely handed it back in after the game, got it washed, and I didn't get to keep it. Wait, wait. So, so were you one of those college football players that has to share a number with another player on the roster because there's like 200 guys on the sidelines? I had three numbers in two years. I, I came in at 25. When I suited up for a game, I was 34. And then my the next year, I was 17 for some reason. I don't, I, it just was left over, clearly. Um, which would have actually would have been a cool number for a running back. But, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't register any stats or anything like that. So it, I'm pretty sure they were just like, well, whatever, kid, just take whatever number we got. 17, Stefan. <laughs> you got to love that as a running back number. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good. Yeah, it is good. I cool. like that. Yeah. 
Major League Baseball opened its regular season on April 1st. The Washington Nationals didn't open their regular season until April 6th because almost a dozen players either tested positive for the coronavirus or may have been exposed to it. On the other side of the continent, the NHL's Vancouver Canucks are in the midst of a two-week COVID hiatus as at least 26 people in the organization, including 22 players, have tested positive, all apparently for the Brazilian coronavirus variant. Meanwhile, baseball is welcoming fans back into stadiums, and the NHL and NBA are too. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell told reporters that he expects full stadiums come fall, and fans in khaki shorts and pastel shirts were crowded together at the Masters over the weekend. Josh, sports remain in a very weird, and it still feels a very tenuous place, um, though I guess, you know, when your, your lizard brain kicks in, it's like, wow, it's cool. There are fans in stadiums cheering at baseball games. It's patrons at the Masters, Stefan. Did I say fans? fans? Oh, my God. No. Are we going to be canceled now by Augusta? Regrettable move by you. So over the weekend, I went to see some outdoor music on like a public kind of lawn thing. And not that far from where you live, uh, Stefan. It felt really nice. And people were distanced and most people were wearing masks. And I felt pretty good and reasonably safe. I've had one uh, vaccine dose at this point. And so I think that the baseball stadiums, for example, that are open at like 20% capacity or 25% capacity, which is the vast majority of them, I don't personally have any problem with that. And I think in this purgatory moment that we're in, it's just this like constant internal push and pull about like, I really want to be out and doing things and going places. And it's an understandable human emotion and impulse, which I have felt and I have acted upon. And so I don't think, I mean, you guys are welcome to say do whatever you want, but I don't think I can sit here and be like, how dare they go to the masters or how dare they go to these games. But there are these sort of outliers, like what's happening in Texas at the Texas Ranger stadium, where I just saw the video of the opening day crowd on Twitter. And it was just like, so revolting and horrifying to see a full baseball stadium in this moment. And so it is just interesting where when you see a kind of smaller crowd, Joel, or at least when I see kind of a smaller crowd, I'm like, oh, that's nice. It's like a vision of the future. When you see a larger crowd, you're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And like, I can't imagine ever being in like a crowded space like that ever again in my life. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, we're pretty much sort of through the looking glass on this thing, right? I mean, I, I... We've always sort of been building up to this moment and somebody was going to have to fill their stadiums first or somebody was going to do it. Maybe they didn't have to do it, but somebody was going to fill their stadium up first. And so like that's what it's going to look like. And we're just going to have to deal with it. And it was, of course, it was going to be in Texas or Florida, right? Like one of the two. Right, because the, the Marlins and the, and the Rays aren't going to fill their stadium under any circumstances. Right, exactly. Like if they, if they, they welcomed everybody in with free tickets, you know, it still, they still probably couldn't sell it out. But yeah, so inevitably this was going to happen. This was going to be the scene we have. It's just going to be a test of we'll find out soon enough if whether or not they hosted a, a super spreader event there in Arlington, Texas. 
we'll find out soon enough if, you know, our fears are overblown. But it's hard to think that. I mean, you know, people are still being hospitalized. You know, there's still spikes in places around the country. People are still dying of COVID around the country. So, you know, I mean, we're basically still having the same fight that we've been having in the past year, except now franchises have a little bit more discretion as to whether or not they want to fill out their stadiums. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure that Jerry Jones, if he was given the chance, you know, like today, if like, if, if there was a way that he could host an event there at Cowboy Stadium uh, at full capacity, he probably would do it and he would be allowed to. And I think that's just something we're going to have to get used to in the next couple of months. And hopefully it doesn't drag us too far back into the bad old days of winter when, you know, the pandemic was at its worst. But I kind of feel like the, the argument over uh, this is over, right, Stefan? Yeah. I mean, I don't... Oh, I think, the, yeah. I think the argument's definitely over, and I think it's going to be one of just personal preference. You know, are you willing to go sit on a lawn in Tony Upper Northwest D.C. where people are going to wear their face masks? Or are you willing to be a patron sprinting toward the uh, award ceremony at Augusta, which was like the weirdest, you know, one of the really weirdest images I saw in the last week. Um, They had an overhead shot after uh, Hideki Matsuyama wins the Masters. The fans sort of rush toward the area where they're going to hand out the awards and, uh, you know, let him put on the green jacket. And it was just really odd. And, you know, I've become sort of interested in the forensics of all this, you know, looking at the videos and seeing how many people are wearing masks or not. I looked at one picture from opening day in uh, for the Texas Rangers, and I counted 83 people in the image. 67 of them were not wearing a mask. Uh, that's 81%. So, I don't know. At this point, we're also going to face the reality that a lot of people are getting vaccinated, and a lot of people in Texas are getting vaccinated. So I think we're going to have to be less judgmental about crowds than we have been for the last year. But I think that's that anxiety of watching big sporting events with lots of unmasked fans is still going to exist. Yeah, like, so Fauci has said, you know, in reference to a place like Nationals Park, which at this point I think is at like 12% capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's right at the bottom of baseball. I think the Nationals and the Red Sox are at 12%. He said, if you have an appropriate prudent spacing of people, the risk is very low. Then he said about the Rangers, I don't want to be critical of that, but that's I would not start off with 100% capacity. Very uh, political statement there from uh, Dr. Fauci. But um, you'll recall that last year uh, in Florida, DeSantis gave all of the teams permission to have full capacity then. And it was only due to like the forbearance of, say, the Miami Dolphins that we didn't have a full NFL stadium in 2020. So I think, you know, you're right, Joel, that people like Jerry Jones or, or obviously what's, what's going on with the, the Rangers baseball team, that the kind of social stigma, at least in certain places, around allowing fandom at, at full capacity has, has lessened. But I guess maybe it's a good thing we haven't seen this even earlier. And, you know, one conversation that... Uh, some of our colleagues were having today that I think is really interesting is around, is there just going to be a day when people stop wearing masks 
Is it going to happen really gradually? Are people going to start wearing dog tags that say, I've been vaccinated? Is there going to be an I'm with two doses of Moderna t-shirt that you can wear? Are stadiums going to require people to have vaccine cards? Uh, I'm sure I'm sure Greg Abbott would be happy about that in Texas. The Yankees and the Mets are apparently requiring proof of full vaccination or a negative uh, COVID test. No, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I think anything is pretty much possible at this moment right now um, as we're still sort of moving towards what a post-pandemic life looks like. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, people are still sort of dealing with this. Um, but I, I think the person that maybe sort of best typified the national sports mood, you know, people that are involved in sports, was somebody else from Texas, you know, Baylor women's basketball coach Kim Mulkey. Um, you know, after Baylor was eliminated from the women's basketball tournament a couple weeks ago. And I think she didn't receive a lot of heat for this because the news cycle sort of moved on and it was like a particularly crowded sports calendar. But she actually argued against COVID testing, period, that, you know, that they should that they didn't she didn't want she didn't think they should test anybody that made it to the women's final four because you didn't want to ruin the opportunity for somebody to play in sports. And so I I'm I'm torn as to whether or not she didn't get any attention for that statement because of sexism, because, you know, people just don't pay attention to women's sports and it was easy to sort of overlook what she said or because it's not that controversial anymore that maybe some people think that, well, you know, we're sort of past this. It's not a big deal. And people can essentially make their decisions about what risk factors, you know, or, or the amount of risk that they want to take. Well, I think I think another factor here, Joel, was that that there's no sort of there hasn't been an overwhelming consensus that outdoor gatherings have led to huge spikes in covid positives i mean there has been uh there was a recent uh story about new research that was done uh last month that there was in fact a link between nfl games that had a lot of fans last fall and an increase in infections in the areas around stadiums. So there is some evidence on that side. The NFL counters that. And but set- there was no evidence of a causal link. There could just be correlation between the fact that places that were inclined to have NFL games with crowds sure. are going to be places that are inclined to have indoor gatherings or to have relaxed rules in all sorts mm-hmm. of different ways. But it was that they I mean, found I think a the spike. consensus... Right. I think the well, there could have been a, a spike related to other things as well. But I think the general consensus is that indoor events are much more dangerous, and in terms of there, there being the the likelihood or the possibility of a, a super spreader uh, moment. And so, again, I feel like the majority of teams, it seems like in baseball in particular, are thinking about this in a responsible way or in the the right way, and are following like. Fauci's advice. And it's very easy to fixate on the Texas Rangers. And we should be fixating on them because what they're doing is is pretty appalling. But I don't think that every sports entity and organization is being irresponsible or is even doing anything that other kind of large organizations 
are doing. No, I don't think so either, Josh. Um, and yeah, baseball's got the lowest risk factor because it's outdoors. But even according to CDC guidelines, baseball ticks high risk for a lot of other things. People not wearing masks when they're sitting in one place for an extended period of time outside. Um, inability to enforce uh, restrictions on social distancing. There are no restrictions on things like yelling and chanting and singing, um, well, which can elevate risk. in the game, and so people don't have anything to <laughs> cheer or yell about. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the sports are managing these things well, but that doesn't mean that this is flawless. It's not really incumbent upon sports teams, owners, players' unions, to be in charge of this. Like, this is supposed to be a top-down sort of thing. Our governments are the, the ones that are supposed to protect us and sort of lay down what the ground rules are. That's what Contra Costa County did, right? Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, that's the reason why Stanford's women's basketball team spent most of the year on the road, um, because there were rules against gathering, um, particularly inside. If the government is going to allow it, I mean, it's hard to sit here and ask these money-making entities to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to pass up on that money, especially after a year in which they you know, lost a tremendous amount of revenue. Um, so you know, whatever's happening now is a result of the government that we have. I was going to say that the, the last thing I think we should address is that I think what we're seeing now is the distinction between what happens in arenas and stadiums and what's happening inside the leagues and teams themselves. And there's, for me, like the real disconnect now. You've got, you've still got, um, you know, by and large, of course, the number of COVID positives and the number of illnesses among players in sports has been fairly low because of aggressive testing and care. But we're still seeing these cases, like with the Nationals, um, who've only played like five or six games so far this season compared to 10 or 11 for other teams because they had games postponed, and the Vancouver Canucks, which is a full-fledged outbreak in what is now April of 2021 inside a professional sports team. Um, so it's it, it, it still raises the alarm bells that we still have problems, not just societally, but even managing sports. Um, and the NHL is like, you know, we're going to postpone, we're going to delay the end of the regular season. We'll start the playoffs later. It'll all be fine. But you've got a variant spreading in British Columbia and issues with vaccination in Canada that are sort of raising anew the, the, the questions of how smart it is to keep going for teams and leagues. And just kind of to close it out, I imagine that we probably won't have many more COVID conversations about this because I think we're pretty much through this. I, I, you know, I saw in the Frozen Four this weekend that UMass won the championship, but they played the semifinals without their goalie, Philip Lindbergh, because he was isolated because he'd been exposed to COVID. And that's probably one of the last times we're going to see outcomes and games affected by COVID. So I'm just... I think that, like, at this point... Really? What? You think this is the last, one of the last times we're going to see outcomes of games affected by COVID? I mean, they're still canceling yeah, games I mean, I'm just sports, people man. Are getting, people are getting vaccine, vaccinated, and, you know, I, I just... <laughs> I think we're going to be leaning into the Kim Mulkey uh, ethos uh, going forward as opposed to anything else. And I'm curious why the NHL hasn't just taken Vancouver out of circulation. Like, they could just be like you know what, <laughs> we're done with you. Like that would, that would be the very kind of unsympathetic burden. I mean, I guess you could look at it either way. Like th there is a sort of like, 
denialism and saying like, oh yeah, we'll finish the regular season. We'll delay the playoffs. They're going to play. It's not even just that. They're like, Vancouver's going to play all of their games. Uh, all of the games that they've missed, they're going to make them up. And so I don't, I don't know whether it would be better or worse for them to just be like, you know what, Vancouver, like you guys should just like get healthy, <laughs> get better. And we'll just like play the rest of the season without you or to just delay, delay, delay. I guess just like cross your fingers that everything's going to be okay and you'll be able to quote unquote finish the season as normal. Yeah, but Josh, the integrity of the results of the Scotia North division are at stake here because you wouldn't want to have an unequal number of games compared to the Mass Mutual East division or the Discover Central division or Honda West division. Stefan has learned that the NHL is sponsoring its divisions. This perhaps can be a discussion for another week. Next up, we're going to talk about the sports feats that still have never been achieved. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk with Luke Eplin, the author of Our Team, about the 1948 Cleveland Indians. He's going to stick around uh, for a conversation about Bob Feller, and Stefan will tell his famous Bob Feller story. You'll not want to miss it. To hear that, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The San Diego Padres have won just two pennants in their 52 seasons of existence, and none since 1998. They also have the worst winning percentage in the majors, edging out the Miami Marlins. So it's fair to say that the Padres are so inconspicuous, they're not even known for all of their losing. But the 2021 Padres do have two of the most exciting players in the game, in Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. And they were headliners for a moment last week, thanks to right-handed Joe Musgrove, who grew up about 10 minutes away from Petco Park. Musgrove pitched a no-hitter on Friday, beating the Texas Rangers, the same ones we talked about in the previous segment, who had a full stadium, 3 nothing. The Padres had been the only team in the majors to never throw one. Now every franchise has a no-hitter. With that feat crossed off, it got us wondering, what are the other sports achievements that still haven't been done yet? And so before we get to that, Stefan, you actually watched the end of the game on Friday night. Did it feel like sports history? Yeah, it did. I mean, somebody on Twitter said, dude on Padres is throwing no-hitter, turn on television, and I did because I am obedient. And it was great. I mean, every no-hitter feels like history because every no-hitter is history. There have only been 263 of them since 1901. I've never seen a no-hitter live, but my favorite no-hitter memory is listening to Dave Rigetti of the New York Yankees throw one on July 4th, 1983, on the car radio, I was listening as I was driving home for a weekend. I was interning for the Providence Journal that summer. I remember pulling into the driveway before the last inning and running inside to catch the end of the game. And here's what it sounded like. He sets the kick and the pitch. He struck him out. Reggetti has pitched a no-hitter. Dave Reggetti has pitched a no-hitter. 
no-hitter. He strikes out Boggs for the final out of the ball game. And the Yankees pour on the field to congratulate Dave Rigetti. But that, of course, wasn't the Yankees' first no-hitter. It was their seventh. And what makes Joe Musgrove's no-hitter really cool and interesting is that it was a statistical anomaly. Ground ball to shortstop. Kim will go to first. The San Diego Padres get their first no-hitter in the history of the franchise. And it belongs to San Diego's own Joe Musgrove, sending the Friar faithful into a frenzy. The Padres were an expansion team in 1969. They played 8,206 games before one of its pitchers threw a no-hitter. Compare that to the Montreal Expos, who also joined baseball in 1969. It took them nine games to throw a no-hitter by Bill Stoneman on April 17th. Put another way, the Expos franchise needed 10 days to throw a no-hitter. The Padres needed 18,995 days. So I think the taxonomy of quirky sports feats, Josh, might fall into two categories— Pretty normal stuff that hasn't happened for no good reason, like the Padres not having a no-hitter, and extraordinary stuff that hasn't happened because it's really hard to do. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about the kind of guardrails to put on this conversation because there is stuff just like records. Like we could talk about, you know, when will somebody top Will Chamberlain's 100 points or any number of things like that. And then, yeah, like you said, there's just like weird stuff like this. And there's, for me, it's kind of like sad that the Padres threw a no-hitter because it's, I I like the preservation of a trivia question or just like a weird, dumb thing that doesn't really make any sense. And really the only comparable thing that's left now in baseball, and this one is just like about 30% dumber than the not having no-hitter, is that no Marlin has ever hit for the cycle. That's the only uh, franchise that does does not have a cycle that's hitting a single, double, triple, and a home run for the same player in the same game. And that's just like a little bit lamer, Joel. Yeah, I, I miss the Padres never having thrown a no hitter. Another another loser franchise. Yeah, it actually is is pretty cool, uh, at least to me, because I have not. I'm trying to think if I've ever thought about the Padres since Tony Gwynn retired. Uh, you know, I when I was growing up in Houston, there was a family that lived down the street from me, Joey and Audrey. I do not remember their last name, but they were fans of the San Diego Padres for some reason. They're the only people I'd known in my entire life who were Padres fans. And I've never thought of them since the 80s because, I mean, I, they, they were also the only family in our neighborhood that had a pool. But um, but they were Padres fans. And I was it was kind of cool for me to think about the Padres again just because I had not. But, yeah, it is kind of sad that they've lost this bit of, like, trivia, right? That something that made them distinctive besides their losing uh, their losing and their inconspicuousness. And um, I kind of, you know, you kind of wish that that kind of stuck around because, I mean, a no-hitter really doesn't tell you anything about anything, right? Like, it, like it, it's not... I know Stefan said that it's a big deal, like that it feels like history, but I feel like you said how many times has it happened? 263. 263, I mean, right. It happens yeah, more than you think, right? Yeah, it's a, right. It's a couple, it's a few times a season. A it, it, times it's, a season at least. It, it ceases to be an impressive accomplishment when somebody, was that guy Stoneman? Is that the guy you you Bill Stoneman, you saw? yeah. Yeah, Bill Stoneman. Okay, if, okay. if you threw a no-hitter, <laughs> yeah. then I would give you a pat on the back, yeah. Joel. It's not, yeah, all it's right. It's not like they're, they're not doing it every day. I'm, I'm, I think Bill right, Stoneman I mean, was pretty just, happy to have thrown a no-hitter for the It's like running yeah. a 10-second, it's like running a sub-10-second 100. Yeah, it's very impressive. Not a lot of people have done it, but it happens enough that it's not quite that big of a deal anymore. So I asked 
on Twitter, now that the Padres have thrown a no-hitter, what are the remaining feats across all sports that have never been done? And a couple of the responses were just like certain teams not having achieved anything, like the Cleveland Browns never playing in a Super Bowl, the Seattle Mariners never making it to the World Series, Detroit Lions never appearing in a Super Bowl. There are some college football things. Joel, Arizona. I didn't actually know this. Arizona, the only Pac-12 school never to go to the Rose Bowl. That's kind of embarrassing. Come on, Arizona. I'm surprised the Dick Tomey Desert Swarm era uh, Wildcats hadn't done it. They were really talented in the 90s. So They had had some some dudes. Ben Mathis Lilly, of of course, noted that Michigan has not played in the Big Ten title game. Uh, That hasn't been around for very long, though. No Met has ever won the MVP award. Yeah. Uh, Mm. Uh, that was that, that's kind of surprising, one. right? The one that I thought was the best, actually, it, it's not quite the same as the Padres winning a no hitter, but I still think that it's in the sweet spot of what we're talking to. As Adam Hirsch noted, there's never been a perfect sweep of the NBA playoffs, and the Warriors actually came really close in 2017. They won their first 15 games before uh, LeBron heroically won a single game for the Cavs in that finals and the. Um, the Warriors ended up 16 and one. Do you feel like that is Stefan? Is that the kind of feat we're looking for? No perfect sweep of, sweep of the NBA playoffs. I mean, it's the, you know, the difference I think is that, you know, no hitter is pretty prominent. I mean, you'd have to sort of scrape your brain to come up with, you know, the sort of manufactured um, anomaly. Um, you know, the perfect sweep, I think, came into the sort of consciousness back in 1983, the same year that Dave Rigetti threw his no-hitter, um, when Moses Malone of the Sixers said that the team's goal was fo 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 they were going to win four games in all three of the series and go perfect 12-0. They ended up losing one game like the Warriors did. But that does feel a little more manufactured, but I do, I do like that as a weird statistical thing because it shows some level of greatness, the way that a a pitcher having an amazing day throwing a no-hitter shows some level of greatness. I mean, does it fall into the same category as a perfect season in the NFL? You know, the the Patriots almost got to 19 and 0. Thanks thank you New York Giants and now it will have to be 20 and 0, I guess, to for for a perfect season. That feels more like these group achievements that we've attached some statistical significance to as opposed to something you know, weird or superhuman, like running for 300 yards in an NFL game, right? Or hitting five home runs in a Major League Baseball game. Yeah, a lot of these things, too, are feats that would be impressive, but not necessarily things you want to watch. Do you really want to watch a team go through the playoffs, the NBA playoffs, undefeated? Like that sucks. Like I, I would, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't enjoy that. I want to see close games. I want to see a team pushed. I don't want to see anybody that dominant. Or, um, you know, I mean, again, a no. A, the thing about a no hitter is that what you're actually watching is a very boring game. You know what I mean? Like I guess you get the tension. You get the tension of of, of seeing somebody you know go through it, but like it's a game without offense essentially, right? And that list of things that hasn't happened. So no NFL team has ever scored four points. That'd be cool to read about, but I would not want to watch <laughs> a football game. I would yeah. totally want to watch that. So yeah. and it would be even better if it was a field goal and a one-point safety. That is my dream. For well, it could coaching. be a four-four tie with the other team having two safeties. Yeah, that would be that would be your ultimate. That would be football the best. Game. Yeah. yeah. All right, I'm going to run through some of these. Um, we've aver- aggregated them across some articles, some Reddit threads, and you guys can just stop me 
if you have any any comment. Another kind of NBA perfect thing that was almost achieved was the Boston Celtics 85-86 went 40 and 1 at home. Um so there's never been a perfect home season in the NBA, but that seems quasi achievable. Rockets beat them in the in the in, at home in the finals, by the way. They beat them in the garden that year. Just just for the record. That was so the, the Rockets they, were basically the NBA champions that that's year. That's right. They came in came in Ralph Sampson. That's true. The Twin Towers. This is another one I thought was interesting that seems like it could be done, but I understand why it hasn't. Is that no pitcher in major league history has ever gone through an entire season without losing a game and qualified for the ERA title, meaning like had enough innings pitched that it would um, you know, they would qualify statistically um that seems like it could maybe happen someday Stefan, because like pitcher wins and losses are sort of random and you can imagine somebody having like an awesome season and also getting lucky and just not being recorded with a loss right it's sort of the same way you can imagine jacob de grom going owen 18 because the <laughs> mets haven't scored a single run for him all season so yeah i mean then i think some of the other statistical ones are that we'd like to see. I mean, it's always round numbers, right? Like, we still haven't had a 20-strikeout no-hitter in baseball. There have been 20-strikeout games, and you'd think, like, Joel, no-hitters, dime a dozen. Some dude, you know, we're striking out more batters than ever. At some point, we should see those two amazing feats combined. I think that would be cool. Why are you stopping there? Why not 27-strikeout no-hitter? Think big. Like the Little League? No, the Little League perfect game? Yeah. I liked this one from from Reddit. There's never in the NFL been a touchdown awarded for a palpably unfair act <laughs> where a referee, like if somebody comes off the sideline and just like tackles a dude at the one yard line, they can award a, a touchdown. Do you think that should have happened to the Saints that year that they played against the Rams in the NFC championship game? Yeah, Do I mean, the pass interference happened at, like inside the 10 yard line, but that should have been a touchdown. Yeah, I think okay. you're right. Mm-hmm. Never been an never been an overtime in a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever run for more than 300 yards in an NFL game. Joel would like to see that one. I would love to see that. The NBA ones, I think, are are interesting. There's never been a scoreless quarter. That is definitely in the Joel Anderson Hall of Fame of things that would not be fun to oh, watch. Oh, do you guys, were, you got, see, I lived in the Dallas area when that Mavericks team was there, when they lost to the, to the Lakers that night. Do you know who played the most minutes for the Mavs that night? A.C. Green. So this was April 97. The Mavs scored two yeah, points. Right. In the third quarter, they only lost, they lost by, by seven. seven. The le- if the- they'd only scored ten points in that in that quarter, they would have beaten the Lakers. The leading the score- score- the scoreless quarter does happen a lot in women's basketball, and I think we saw one in the late stages of the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I mean that's only ten minutes, right? I mean, I, you know, I don't. That's never going to happen. Now, I'm, I don't want to say I shouldn't say never, but like I cannot imagine an NBA team going scoreless for a game at this point. So. I mean, right? Um, I think it could happen. I think it could happen. It probably won't happen, but I think it could theoretically happen. So the thing that that could happen that has never happened is father and son playing together. So if LeBron and Bronny uh, are on the same team in a couple of years, like that's a thing that's happened in baseball with the Griffies, but never happened in the NBA. And then I guess the last thing I would say is that NBA records around individual scoring, I mentioned 100 points for Wilt in a game. The thing that I find so fascinating about that is that it's all about kind of convention and uh, about sort of the niceties of the game. Because what's stopping, I mean, you've seen this, like when guys are going for the scoring title, just like taking every single shot and like 
Kobe, who's the most, I don't know what you can, you can choose what adjective you want to use, the most self, self-involved star player of, of, of them all, got scored 81 in a game. But there could be some night where like the Warriors are like, you know what, Steph, we're going to pass it to you every time. You're going to shoot 50-something threes. What I'm saying is be more selfish. We want to, we want to, we want to see more uh, individual scoring records, especially when you're like, you know, not in contention for anything. Just, you know, try to, try to make uh, 33s in a game. See, that's why, threes. that's why I like the baseball records because you can't manipulate them in quite the same way. Will someone go eight for eight in a game? That would be really cool. Will someone, as I mentioned, hit five home runs in a game? That would be really cool too, but they're not dependent on, you know, teammates to help get it done. Though, you know, there's nothing wrong with with the manufacturing records either. So, yeah, I am, Steph I am Curry. Manipulation. Manipulate away. Let's see Steph get 120 in a game. Up next, Luke Eplin on his book, Our Team and the Second Black Player in Major League Baseball. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This Thursday, April 15th, is Jackie Robinson Day in Major League Baseball. It's an annual celebration of the player who broke the league's modern color barrier. And this year, it'll be the 74th anniversary of Robinson's debut with the Brooklyn Dodgers. As far as I know, this July 5th will not be marked by a similar kind of special celebration by Major League Baseball. July 5th, uh, 2021, will be the 74th anniversary of Larry Doby's first game with the Cleveland Indians. Doby was the second African-American player after Robinson to break the modern color barrier, and he was the first in the American League. His story is very different from Robinson's, though. Um, It's just as inspiring and infuriating. Luke Eplin tells that story and a bunch more in his new book, Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. Luke, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Jackie Robinson signs with the Dodgers October 45. He then plays a whole minor league season before his big league debut in Brooklyn. Larry Doby, he's playing in the Negro Leagues for the Newark Eagles on July 4th, 1947. He made his major league debut for the Indians the very next day. That's really remarkable. So how did that happen? Yeah, so uh, Bill Veck, who was the owner of the Cleveland Indians, he bought the team in 1946, had plans to integrate uh, the Indians pretty much off the bat. Veck had tried to buy the Philadelphia Phillies in 1942 whenever he was a minor league owner, and he really wanted to integrate that team as well. So he has integration in his mind. Um, He waits until uh, Jackie Robinson uh, breaks the Major League Baseball color line in April of 1947, and then he sort of decides that he's going to take a much different 
tact than Branch Rickey took with uh, Robinson. As you mentioned, Robinson has basically an 18-month buildup from whenever the signing is, a, is announced with the Brooklyn Dodgers to the time that he actually debuts on the Brooklyn Dodgers. Vex thought that this sort of thing puts a li- put a little bit too much pressure on Robinson, that it gave him sort of a lot of time to be under the spotlight, to have to sort of go through a bunch of things rather than just getting thrown into the, the major league fire. And he even told, Vex told a reporter from the Pittsburgh Courier that one of these days the Indian players are going to go onto the field and there will be a black player with him. Um, so he decides to take a completely different tact with Larry Doby. He uh, wants to uh, infuse the Indians with talent in 1947. They had been a sort of sixth place team the year before. And uh, so he starts scouring the Negro Leagues. Uh, they come across Larry Doby, who had just won the uh, Negro League World Series championship with the Newark Eagles the previous season. Doby's tearing up the league in 1947. Vec uh, consults with Effa Manley and decides to purchase the contract of Larry Doby on July 1st. Doby himself does not find out he's signed by the Indians until July 2nd. He plays another game with the Newark Eagles, goes to a train station in Newark, New Jersey, and then is on an overnight train to Chicago the very next day. It is a whirlwind for Doby. Uh, Luke, do you mind briefly telling us like, what the impact of losing players like Doby had on the manlies of the New York Newark Eagles and broadly the, the Negro Leagues? Because you know, this... It was sort of like a drip, drip, drip thing, and then all of a sudden the floodgates opened, right? And they were, and they were put in a really weird position too, um, in as much as Vec, who was, you know, is histor- is viewed historically as a really noble, progressive guy, totally lowballed the Eagles and Effa Manley, the owner, in terms of her price for for asking price for Larry Doby, because he knew that. You know, because he knew that she would know that she couldn't stand in the way of this progress, even though it would hurt them financially. Yeah, Effa Manley is, is, a, is a key figure in all of this. Um, with her husband, Abe Manley, they owned the Newark Eagles, purchased the team in 1935, brought them over to Newark in 1936. They'd been trying to win a Negro League uh, World Series uh, since then. And in 1946, they had sort of a roster that could finally do it. They had Leon Day, an amazing uh, uh pitcher on that team, and of course, Monty Irving and Larry Doby. Um, the thing to keep in mind is that the Newark Eagles had already lost Don Newcomb to the Brooklyn Dodgers before the 1946 season, and Branch Rickey practiced a much different sort of tactic than Vec. Uh, Rickey thought that the Negro Leagues were kind of a racket in his words. He thought that the sort of contracts they signed were not standard, that they were a little bit flimsy, and he believed that after each season, every Negro League player basically became a free agent. Agent. So he did not consult with the Newark Eagles in terms of signing uh, Don Newcomb, who was a young pitcher for them at that time. And so Manley was furious at this idea, and she really thought that Negro League owners needed to be compensated for finding, developing the the, the players on their rosters. Um, with Vec, as you mentioned, he did uh, contact Manley and offer to offer her some co- compensation, and it was low. And Manley talks about in her autobiography how 
that Vec would have offered 10 times that much for a player of, of Doby's talent if he were white, but she knew that if she tried to fight him or blocked Doby's sort of way into the majors, it could sort of start a firestorm of criticism, both within both among players and also within the black press, which at that time really wanted to see black players cross over into the major leagues and, and do well. And as uh, Joel was saying, it was devastating for the New York, New York Eagles. They drew a record number of fans in 1946 after the war. They won the World Series. The next year, uh, the, the, fan, the fan total was just sort of slashed in half. They were leading the Negro Leagues again in 1947. And then Manley said after Doby was signed, it was like the air got taken out of the tire. The, the players kind of didn't have the same sort of fire as they did before, that, uh, that they, they kind of sensed that things were maybe sort of crumbling and the morale went. And by 1948, the Eagles... Uh, uh, we're averaging uh, a little more than 30,000 fans a season. So uh, FNA and Abe Manley uh, end up unloading the team the, the, next, the next season. So the thing that comes through just very clearly in the book, Luke, is that you know this decision to just throw Larry Dobeat into the f- fire, it was not very sensitive to Dobie as a human being. He gets to you know, the clubhouse in Cleveland. It doesn't seem like the players were really prepped for this. They, you know, one player in particular, the first baseman, sees him as a threat, like he's going to steal his job. The players very, like, kind of ostentatiously refuse to play catch with him on the field. Certain players don't shake hands with him. You know, it's unimaginable what this must have felt like for Dobie to have this, like, amazing achievement, first black player in the American League and also feeling like he has to perform well or else it, you know, discredits his race and discredits the entire Negro Leagues and then to come and to get this sort of reception. It just was incredibly hard on him. Yeah, and Doby himself was a introverted, quiet, shy individual. Um, and he doesn't really have a lot of time to sort of wrap his mind around what uh, what it's happening and what it means. He literally journeys overnight from the Negro Leagues to the major leagues, and he is unprepared for what is to come, just as the players on the Cleveland Indians, who had found out about this only a day or so before, are sort of uh, unprepared for what what is going to, to happen. Doby, in addition to that was a second baseman uh, in the Negro Leagues for the Newark Eagles. And the Indians, the previous offseason, had just traded for Joe Gordon, who was a, a former MVP for the New York Yankees, and he recovered his form that year. In fact, he was the starting second baseman for the All-Star game. The Indians' infield was pretty set at third, shortstop, and second, so the only place where Doby could really play was first base. And first base was being manned by an individual named Jack- Eddie Robinson, who uh, is from Texas, and was really struggling to sort of make his way in the majors. He was 26 years old. He'd been in the service and in the minor leagues, and he was struggling to sort of raise his batting average above 220. And so when it's announced that Larry Doby is going to be starting at first base the second day that Doby is on the Indians, Eddie Robinson quits the club and says, well, I'm just not going to play then. And you can definitely see that, that the Indians players rallied around uh, Robinson and um, 
Larry Doby never starts a game, not only at first, but anywhere in the field the rest of that season. Um, it does seem like there was a fear for further dissension on the Indians. And so he becomes kind of a, a bench player and uh, is quite isolated, um, alone for, for most nights, and um, not really sort of a part of that team. That's what I didn't realize remembering uh, what I know about Larry Doby's history, that that the year he came up, he didn't do anything. That he was ostracized and benched. Um, he only had five hits over the three months that he spent in the in in the big leagues with the Indians in 1947. And that winter, because of Doby's bad performance, you write how Vec and and Branch Rickey, in, among them, uh, nobody signed any more players from the Negro leagues. That the the view was that Jackie Robinson looked like the outlier, um, and Doby's experienced. Press, experience presaged uh, uh, this, this caution that that that, that pervaded among uh, among big league owners, but things change in 1948, and the subject of your book is the 1948 season. So, how does Larry Doby go from last guy on the bench, outcast, ostracized by his teammates, to an integral part of what's going to become a World Series winner? It's really one of the most. Improbable stories in baseball history. As you said, in 1947, Larry Doby does not look like a major league quality player. Um, his teeth chattered whenever he came to bat because he was so, sort of nervous um, being where he, where he was and just the ostracization that, that he faced. In fact, after the 1947 season, he went to a coach named Bill McKechnie on the Indians and said, can I even make it in the majors? And McKechnie told him, I don't think you're an infielder. I think you're an outfielder. And that's what you need to do. Doby is so inexperienced in the outfield. He's never really played there before. He's checking out books in the library in the offseason called How to Play the Outfield. Um, he makes he goes to spring training in nineteen. If only they had the Tom Amansky instructional DVDs. I, back he then. really missed out. He goes to spring training in nineteen forty eight. The Indians have eight outfielders vying for just a handful of spots, and it is it is sort of understood that Dobie is not going to be among those. He needs more sort of seasoning in the minors if he's going to make it at all. But he just comes out and he's a completely different person. It's like night and day. He is is suddenly sort of tearing the cover off the ball. And uh, he makes a lot of mistakes in the outfield. He has quite an error-prone season early in 1948 because he basically has to learn the entire position on the fly. And early in 1948, the Indians are sort of contemplating at various points whether they need to send him down, whether he, in fact, does need to sort of learn how to play the nuances of of a position that he's never played before. And every time they're thinking of doing that, Dobie hits like a mammoth home run or does something that sort of hints at his athletic potential. And they just kind of continue to keep him on the roster. And basically by the midpoint of, of the 1948 season on toward the uh, the World Series, Dobie is the indispensable star of, of that team. Obviously, you know, the, the, the big piece of the story is is Jackie Robinson, you know, the first black, you know, player to, to play in the majors. Because of that, Larry's story tends to get overlooked. And I, it had never even occurred to me that maybe they those two men had a relationship. And you mentioned that, you know, th- they did develop a relationship and that Larry actually leaned on Jackie Robinson in a lot of ways to get through, you know, um, I mean, what was a, you know, pretty much a, a really difficult time for him, correct? Yeah, when Doby comes up in 1947 on the Cleveland Indians, um, 
At that time, it was the standard practice for baseball players to have a roommate on the road in hotels. Um, of course, Dobie couldn't stay in some of the hotels that the Indians were playing in. He was often shunted to separate accommodations, and even if he was staying in the same hotel as the Indians, it wasn't practice to have a white a teammate room with a black teammate. So Dobie was quite alone a lot of the times. And this was a thing that he really talked about, particularly to uh, black reporters at that time, the sort of isolation and alienation that he felt and just being alone, constantly not able to sort of take his mind off of uh, if he had a bad day, if he struck out, any sort of thing like this. And really the only person at that time that could sort of understand what he was going through was Jackie Robinson. And so Dobie talked several times in interviews about how they would call each other late at night whenever they were alone in their hotel rooms and sort of work through these things that they were dealing with that the white teammates uh, wouldn't have been able to understand. In fact, probably very few people would have been able to uh, to understand it. Um, basically through that entire first year from 47 until midway through the 1948 season, Dobie is pining for some sort of roommate that, that he can sort of talk to and, and, get, and get his mind off of these things. What he gets is Satchel Paige in 1948, and those two did not always get along. Yeah, you wrote that as someone who'd broken into the American League as an elderly legend whose lofty reputation preceded him, Paige could act and speak in ways inconceivable to Dobie. Um, can you sort of explain the differences and the tension between those two men? Yeah, they came up at very different times. They're sort of occupying opposing ends of a generational spectrum. Paige is 17 years older than Dobie. He was 42 when he broke in with the Indians in 1948. Dobie was 23 in, 19, in 1947. Um, so Paige grew up at a time uh, of just extreme sort of Jim Crow, rigid segregation, and he kind of develops this uh, persona that enables him to sort of navigate the segregation that he's facing while he's on the road. He did quite a bit of, of, of barnstorming. Um, Dobie kind of looks at Paige and sees uh, somewhat of a caricature, um, perhaps like almost like a step and fetch it sort of figure. And it wasn't the sort of uh, image that Dobie himself wanted to project. He he keeps using the word the term dignity, and he didn't see that in sort of Paige's persona. And Paige is just kind of this. I mean, he's he's basically a baseball legend. His lore crossed racial lines even before he. Uh, made it into Major League Baseball. And um, so they were kind of at loggerheads with the with each other. Dobie was always sort of telling Paige, you have to act like a big leaguer. And Paige was doing his thing. He, he occasionally missed uh, trains. He occasionally uh, didn't show up if it was raining outside, um, things like this. And, and Dobie was, was frustrated by it. And, and it does reflect the sort of different experiences of these men growing up. We haven't talked about Dobie's childhood, but he uh, he grew up in New Jersey, went to an integrated high school, only a handful of black students, but he was like a legendary figure as an athlete. Um, and you, you write in the book how how Dobie's first taste of actual searing uh, racism and segregation comes when he is inducted into the military. Yeah, Dobie grows up, or, or at least he goes to high school in Patterson, New Jersey, and he becomes a four-sport sensation. He is so popular in high school that there is a testimonial dinner in Patterson that is convened in his honor uh, his senior year, and, and 
poems are composed about him, music is composed, and he's given like a gold watch, something that hasn't been done for any other athlete at that time. He certainly faced racism from the stands, on the field, things like this, but he claims he didn't get his first sort of real dose of it until he went into the military. He gets drafted into the Navy, and he takes a train from Newark to Chicago, where he was going to do his training. And he kind of looks around the train, and he sees white recruits and black recruits together. And he's thinking to himself, well, we're all going to the same place. We're all going to fight in the same war. We're going to be in this together. And he even sort of recognizes people on the train, people from his sports that he played against or people from his high school. But once he gets to the Great Lakes Naval Training Station in Chicago, the white recruits are immediately separated from the black recruits. And Dobie says many times that it was the first time that racism really kind of punched him in the face. Like, it it was just sort of starkly drawn out for him, and and, and it really wounded him. So we haven't gone through the whole kind of excitement of the 1948 season and Larry Dobie's heroics in uh, the 1948 World Series, but we'll leave some for the book. We want to help goofs the uh, the book sales here, but we are going to have uh, Luke stick around for the bonus segment so that Stefan can tell his uh, Bob Feller story. Bob Feller being one of the four men that is written about in our team by Luke Eplin. Luke, thank you so much for your time and congrats on the book. Thank you, Josh. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. We got a few responses to my mention last week while I was in Western Massachusetts of Williams and Amherst Colleges, and also Joel correctly identifying their conference as NESCAC the New England Small College Athletic Conference. I said that they played some good basketball out there, and it's true. The Williams men, the EFS, E-P-H-S, after founder Ephraim Williams, the EFS won the D3 championship in 2003. They were runners-up in 2004, 10, and 14 before transferring to Michigan and making the NBA. Duncan Robinson was an EFS and missed a 43-footer at the buzzer in a 75-73 loss to Wisconsin-Whitewater in the 2014 final. Rival Amherst, meanwhile, won it all in 2007 and 2013 and uh, was the runner-up in 2008. But listener at official tweeted that few coaches anywhere have been more successful than the women's coach at Amherst, G.P. Gramacki. Look him up at official wrote. Heck, name an after ball after him. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. In 13 seasons, Gramacki has a record of 377 wins and 32 losses, three national championships in 2011, and in identical 33-0 and seasons in 2017 and 18. He's taken the Mammoths to eight Final Fours, was shooting for another one in 2020 when the tournament was canceled after the second round. Under Gramacki, Amherst 
also has had winning streaks of 68 games overall and 121 at home. Gramacki told the New York Times in 2015 that he liked coaching D3 because it gave him the freedom to coach his kids' soccer team in the offseason. GP Gramacki, coaching legend. Joel, what's your GP Gramacki? Well, I can't believe the women's team is called the Mammoths. That's their mascot? Really? That's the Amherst mascot, right. yeah. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, very appropriate to start this with not quite primetime hoops. So when Hubert Davis was announced as the new men's head basketball coach at the University of North Carolina last week, it was further validation of one of Dean Smith's more traditional ideas about program building. Not everyone who plays on a team needs a letter jacket. So let me explain. Sure, there were plenty of reasons to elevate Hubert Davis to the top job at North Carolina. Davis is an alum, a formerly overlooked recruit from Virginia who eventually turned himself into a first-round NBA draft pick by the New York Knicks. Davis played for Dean Smith and has been an assistant at North Carolina under Roy Williams for the past nine years, a role that connects him to the program's glorious past and its, well, you know, slightly less glorious present. But Davis's resume also includes a fairly reliable predictor of success for future college basketball coaches. He spent the last few years coaching the Tar Heels junior varsity team, a holdover idea from the Smith era at UNC. Yes, North Carolina still has a junior varsity program just like your old high school. Well, maybe not quite like your old high school, but the Heels JV team is a throwback to a long ago time in college sports. When freshmen weren't yet eligible to play on varsity teams, and pro sports leagues didn't have nearly as much money to entice college stars to leave school early. North Carolina's JV team started as a freshman team, which weren't all that uncommon 40 or so years ago. Lots of powerhouses had freshman teams, schools like UCLA, Nebraska, and Texas, just to name a few. And keep in mind that even the former Luau Sendor, better known later as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and described by the Associated Press in 1965 as a, quote, younger combination of Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell, was stuck on UCLA's freshman team in the 1965-66 season. In Abdul-Jabbar's autobiography, Giant Steps, he wrote of a preseason matchup between his freshman team and UCLA's varsity, which was then coming off of its second consecutive national championship six months earlier. The game was never close, Abdul-Jabbar wrote. There was no defense against us. I scored 31 points and we won by 15. And that's pretty much how UCLA's freshmen handled the rest of their opponents that season, which were largely freshmen and JV teams and junior colleges across Southern California. Abdul-Jabbar wrote, We won all 21 of our games, and not one of them was close. So when the NCAA finally embraced freshman eligibility in 1972, Sports Illustrated wrote that, quote, Basketball coaches prefer to think freshmen were allowed to play primarily for basketball, and more specifically to help them get UCLA. By that point, even a blue blood program like UNC had to use gimmicks to keep games close against UCLA. In the 1968 National Championship game, Dean Smith and the Tar Heels resorted to that old boring-ass four-corners offense to keep things close against Abdul-Jabbar and the Bruins, and it did not work. UCLA won in a 23-point route. So a few colleges reasoned, though, hmm, Maybe we could get a little bit more out of some of these highly touted freshmen, guys like David Thompson at NC State, Cassie Russell at Michigan, or even John Lucas at Maryland. But for as many coaches who wanted freshmen on the court, many more were against the change. A poll of major college football coaches at the time indicated they were 2-1 to one against using freshmen on varsity teams. Imagine that, right? 
Um, there was also a belief that the NCAA's new freshman rule was pushed by faculty athletic advisors, particularly those who worked in administrations concerned with saving money. As the New York Times wrote then, their feeling is that by eliminating freshman teams, they will save money. As you can see, that clearly worked out, right? Anyway, Dean Smith, unlike the vast majority of his peers, elected to keep a sub-varsity team at North Carolina. In a profile of the school's JV team last year, the New York Times wrote that Smith wanted to give regular students a chance to be around North Carolina basketball while also letting potential walk-ons learn the varsity system. And that's apparently what it was. It wasn't really a pipeline for players for the Tar Heels varsity. In fact, I can't find much evidence that any junior varsity player ever became a significant contributor to UNC's varsity. Remember, within a decade of freshmen being eligible, UNC was already leaning on rookies like Michael Jordan. But it did turn out to be a really good way of developing coaches. Or at the very least, it gave them a chance to work a sideline of their own. Roy Williams coached North Carolina's junior varsity team for eight seasons while serving as an assistant for Dean Smith. Gerard Haas, who's the coach at Stanford now, coached the North Carolina JV team for three years while working as an assistant for Roy Williams. And even Phil Ford, who became the first freshman under Dean Smith to start in his first college game, he coached the JV team in North Carolina in the 90s for a few years. Roy Williams liked the concept of a JV team so much that he started one while he was at Kansas. And out of that Jayhawks JV program came Mark Turgeon, now the head coach at Maryland, Steve Robinson, who was later a head coach at both Tulsa and Florida State, and another guy you may have heard of, John Calipari. But that team only lasted there for a couple of years, and it finally ended when the Kansas administration argued that the male junior varsity skewed the school's Title IX balance. And, you know, Williams was angry in his folksy sort of retrograde way, saying, that made me so mad. It was the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. People will use excuses, money, time. I think it's hogwash because the value you get from it is so much more. So it's no surprise that when Roy Williams returned to North Carolina as the head coach in 2003, he kept the junior varsity program and later placed Hubert Davis in charge of it. But if the program is as important as they say it is, I still can't find much about it on the internet. There's no schedule, no record, and not even right now a roster on the team website. So maybe the best way to keep up with the team is through its Instagram page, at UNCJVBball. The last post there is from March 3rd, 2020, promoting the team's final game of the regular season against Milligan College in Tennessee. But there's no update on the final score. We do, however, know that the North Carolina JV plays as many as 18 games a season, all of them about three hours before the varsity games at the Dean Smith Center. They tend to draw a few dozen fans a game, mostly family members or students looking for free food and something to do. Their schedule mostly consists of games against local community and junior colleges and prep schools. No, they don't play any ACC games because no other ACC program has a junior varsity team. And the Hills' JV rival is probably Hargrave Military Academy, which has alums including Larry Brown, who played a post-grad year there on his way to North Carolina, where he later played under Dean Smith. All roads lead back to Dean Smith, right? So anyway... Hubert Davis's release doesn't say much about his experience coaching the JV, but some of his former players told the Inside Carolina website that he was very much an acolyte of the Carolina way. The JV runs the Hills' renowned secondary break, an offensive system Smith made as famous as he did that old stupid-ass four-corners offense. They run an elevator door play to get a three-point shooter open at the top of the key, just like all UNC teams do. 
And, you know, if you watch them, they look awful like, like the North Carolina we're all familiar with, except, say, you know, Jerry Stackhouse or Ty Lawson, right? So now Davis will get his chance on the varsity, like surely many of our listeners did after getting called up from JV. Let's just hope that he'll be as proud of his promotion as he is of his wife. Stefan, any JV experience for you? Oh, yeah. The most embarrassing JV experience was that I had to play on the JV ice hockey team in 11th grade. Because I just wasn't very good. Did you star on the JV team that year, though? I didn't star playing ice hockey at all, but I scored a few goals, yeah. You know, going against 8th and ninth graders on the other, other teams. Being, being from Louisiana, anyone who can ice skate is you know, deserving of uh, applause from me. Yeah. You're a star. I should have moved to Louisiana. Um, that was terrific. Joel, I do want to circle back to your comment about the mammoths at the beginning. Oh, yeah. The the Mammoths are actually new. I had forgotten this, that Amherst was the Lord Jeffs for like a century. And then in 2017, they renamed um, the the, the team and and created a mascot because there's a mammoth skeleton that was discovered by an Amherst professor that's in the school's museum because Lord Jeff was was a British general named Geoffrey Amherst who in the uh, 18th century wanted to give smallpox infected blankets to Native Americans. So well, there was no way when you said British general, there was no way that anything that followed was going to be good. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, it was. It, I just as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, okay, I know why they had to change it. So makes sense. Hooray for the mammoths! That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Margaret Kelly. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just reach out, go to sleep.com/hangup. You can email us at hangup@sleep.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out, and you want to be helpful, I can tell. For Joel Anderson, Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.